You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that thou... Gracious Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house of prayer this day and to hear this great crescendo and climax of this part of your sermon. It's a challenging word to us, Lord, so we ask for your blessing upon us as we seek to understand it better. Teach us your will and your ways, and conform our lives to them both. And this we ask through our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. So for a couple of weeks now, eight weeks actually, you have heard these words again and again. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I've kept that line coming back again and again because it really is the framework for the entire section of the Sermon on the Mount we've been considering, what are called the antithesis. Antithesis, excuse me, where Jesus says, You have heard it said that I say to you. He's teaching us progressively. He's illustrating for us how to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's laying out a plan. Like a good physical therapist, would do for you after you had a knee transplant or something like that, laying out a plan for you to grow strong enough to live in the way he's calling for, a rehabilitation plan. Only, instead of having a knee transplant, you've had a heart transplant. From stone into flesh. And I hope by now that the error of the Pharisees is apparent to you. The Pharisees sought to obey God in the externals. They were diligent in that, in fact. But they wanted to do it without being fundamentally transformed in their inner life. They wanted to be the same old people, but with a new external kind of righteousness. As this part of the sermon crescendos to its climax, we learn from Jesus that that is going to be impossible. Because I guarantee you this, there is no way for you to love your enemies unless you have been transformed by the love of God. That inner transformation is required. And this is the final illustration. It's the summation of everything that's come before it. Now, the final line of this part of the sermon, right before we're going to next week, finally move into chapter 6. But the final line, you be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I actually don't know the more discouraging line in Scripture, do you? Goodness gracious. <laughs> but it helps to know what that word perfect meant to be. 
how that's different from us and the way we hear it now, 20 centuries later. The word that is translated as perfect from the Greek is the word telos or telos. If you're a philosophy student, you'll know it from the word teleology. Um, and it doesn't mean perfect, but it doesn't mean perfect in the way we usually think of it. We usually think of perfection as something static. You keep working at something until it's perfect. They don't touch it anymore. I've heard that Citizen Kane is the most perfect movie ever filmed and edited in all the process that goes into filming a motion picture. You don't touch something that's perfect. But the idea of telos in Greek is more of a dynamic concept. It means something more like whole or fulfilled. A person who is perfect in this sense has fulfilled their, all their potential. They have become what they were made to be. They've grown from the little acorn into the big oak as we sing to our kids in elementary school. Now we've heard a lot, I think, in our world about holistic approaches, for instance, to medicine. Most of us want to be complete, to have that sense of peace that comes with knowing there's no more questing out there for us. We want to be fulfilled. That's why we keep chasing things and trying to acquire things. We hope the next thing we acquire is fulfilled. Jesus is lifting up for us that in God, in the light of the kingdom, fulfillment happens in one way. To be complete, to be whole, to be fulfilled is to love. To have our inner life flow with love. And all of the illustrations Jesus has been given in this part of the sermon, the illustrations about anger, the illustrations about um, un, uh, unbalanced desire, the illustrations about being transparent to our word and not taking vengeance when we could. All of these are like illustrations of how love would act in a given circumstance, or might act in a given circumstance, so that we, who are being changed to learn how to love, can act for ourselves. They're not new rules for us to follow. Instead, Jesus is pointing us to a new way of life where, because love is our inner life, it gives rise naturally to love-motivated action. Now each of these means that to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees is not to focus as they did upon managing our behavior in each little thing, although there may be some of that at the beginning. I'm old enough to remember that when I learned to ride a bike, I had training wheels. And there's a little of this, oh, I gotta go right. Oh, no, I gotta go left. There's a little of that at the beginning. But that's not the ultimate goal. Rather, our goal is to be transformed by a relationship with God, who in Jesus Christ is at hand. Remember where we started? The kingdom is at hand for us in Jesus. To be so transformed by a daily relationship with Him and with His Word that our actions naturally spring from His love, which is inside us. This is why John, the Apostle John, in his letters would say, We love because God first loved us. 
It's not that there was no love between people before that. It's that we didn't know how to love the way God loves. See, Jesus calls us not to do as he does, but rather to be as he is. And he's going to accompany us with his spirit and his word until we can do that in our own small way. As Luther said, the Christian life is nothing other than learning to become a little Christ to your neighbor. And we just heard some words I think are familiar to all of us from 1 Corinthians 13, right? You've been to a wedding and heard these words. Love is patient, love is kind. And the air in your end is generous. All that stuff is in it. It's not boastful, arrogant, rude. But did you hear how it started? Because usually when you go to the wedding, it starts at verse 13.1. If you go back to the verse before it, St. Paul says, I will show you a more excellent way. And then when it ends with that famous faith, hope, and love abide with the greatest of these is love, you know what the next verse says? Pursue love. It's not we who are going to acquire love by being, you know, generous and not envious or not arrogant or not boastful. Love inside of us is going to give rise to those things. And the Bible talks about both us pursuing God and God pursuing us. And as our opening prayer said, we really can't even pursue God until He's pursued us because we don't want Him. God comes looking for us. God with His love teaches us how to love the way God does. And to love one's enemy. That's the ultimately Christ-like activity. Romans 5 says this. 5, 5.8 in part 10. God shows his love for us though while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then it goes on. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You have a relationship with God because He came seeking you when you were His enemy. If you value that love relationship with God, it's because He loved His enemy. We weren't relatively good people who needed a little light up. We were fighting against God, tooth and nail. And He came and saved us anyway. And he doesn't only want us to be saved. He wants us to be whole, complete, fulfilled by having his life of love flowing through us. And this is why the first systematic theologian of the church, Irenaeus of Leon, in the second century, around 170 AD, said this, the glory of God is a human being full of love. The glory of God is a human being fully alive, filled with God's love. That's God's glory. Makes all that stuff that happened to Isaiah in the temple look small. Now, Western culture, since the advent of the Enlightenment for the last 250 plus years, has been seeking a morality, a human-based morality, without reference to divine revelation. And the mess we're in right now is part of the fruit of that. We've not been willing to let God love us so we can learn to love as he loves. What Jesus meant by perfect 
as your Father in heaven is perfect is this. Be whole, be complete, be fulfilled. Be loved. Be possessed by love. Don't resist the grace that has claimed you a rebel for sonship to be an heir of the Most High. Rather, learn to live. Instead of learning, instead of continuing to live on your own terms, learn to live on Jesus' terms. The late Rabbi Zechariah um, just passed away a couple of months ago said that in 40 years of speaking mostly to hostile audiences, people who were opposed to the message he was giving about the gospel, said the hardest task he had and came up constantly was Christians talk about being redeemed, Christians talk about being transformed, and Christians talk about regeneration in the spirit, then why do so few who profess Christ show evidence of that transformed life? It's too easy an answer simply to say that we're sinners. That's true, but it's too easy. As Chesterton said, the problem with Christianity, the problem with the gospel is not that it has been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. But we face a real danger, a real danger. If we try to claim Jesus as Savior but don't want Him as Lord. It's a danger to ourselves and what we do to our own souls and it's definitely a danger to the witness we give to God and the world. I don't know if you recognize this person. This is a name, I, a person, a face picture I got familiar with when I was in high school. Um, his name is Frederick Douglass. And his autobiography, The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, along with Uncle Tom's Cabin, helped give fuel to the abolitionist fire in the first half of the 1800s and propelled us towards civil war. I'm standing at a podium today because this is, I don't want to put, I don't want to paraphrase, I don't want to put words in his mouth, I want you to hear his words about what happened when his master became Christian. This was published in 1845, so about 20 years before, a little less than 20 years before the American Civil War. He said, in August 1832, my master attended a Methodist camp meeting held in the Bayside, Calvo County, and there experienced religion. I indulged a faint hope that this his conversion would lead him to emancipate his slaves, and that if he did not do this, it would at any rate make him more kind and humane. I was disappointed in both these respects. It neither made him to be humane to his slaves nor to emancipate them. If it had any effect on his character, it made him more cruel and hateful in all his ways. For I believe him to have been a much worse man after his conversion than before. Prior to his conversion, he relied upon his own depravity to shield and sustain him in his savage barbarity. But after his conversion, he found religious sanction and support for his slaveholding cruelty. As an example, 
I will state one of many facts going to prove the charge. I have seen in Pia a lame young woman. Now this, he talks more about her in, in the autobiography. Her name was Henny. She had fallen into a fire as a child and her hands were so burned she couldn't use them for any fine motor activities, but she was suited only to carry heavy things around the farm. And um, he based this, this, this man, Thomas Old, his master, uh, Frederick Douglass's master, basically saw her as just another mouth to feed, and he was famous for starving his slaves, which even other slaveholders found barbaric. I've seen him tie up a lame young woman and whip her with a heavy cowskin upon her naked shoulders causing the warm red blood to drip and in justification of the bloody deed, he would quote this passage of scripture. He that knoweth his master's will and doeth not shall be beaten with many stripes. He appended his autobiography. He put an appendix at the end in which he said this. He said, I find since reading over the foregoing narrative that I have in several instances spoke in such a tone and manner respecting religion as may possibly lead those unacquainted with my religious views to suppose me an opponent of all religion. To remove the liability of such misapprehension, I deem it proper, I deem it proper to append the following brief explanation. What I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable and impartial Christianity of Christ, I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all liars. Never was there a clearer case of stealing the livery of the court of heaven to serve the devil. And that was written in 1845. We today in our country have trouble being heard as Christians with the gospel of the love of Jesus Christ because there was a lingering memory of this kind of Christianity, where people claimed Jesus as Savior, had powerful religious experiences, but were not willing to be transformed by His love, His Lordship. If you want to know what the Lordship of Jesus Christ says about slavery, you turn to Philemon and read it. It's only 13 verses long. Here's a face I didn't learn, and I never saw in high school. Only after I became a Christian. His name was John Jasper. He lived from 1812 to 1901. He lived across the same divide in slavery that Frederick Douglass did. He became a Baptist pastor and spent over 40 years spreading the gospel. 
in one of his sermons, he talked about his conversion and the way his master had been transformed by the gospel. Though not as transformed as he might have been. But, but hear his own words. After a while, he, that is his master, says, John, did you tell any of them in there about your conversion? And I say, yes, Master Sam. I told them, for I knew it. And I feel like telling everybody in the world about it. Then he says, John, you may tell them. Go back in there and go up and down the tables and tell all of them. And then, if you want to, go upstairs. That is, to the white boys. And tell them all about it. And then downstairs, tell the hogshead men and the drivers and everybody what the Lord has done for you. Oh, that happy day. Can I ever forget it? That was my conversion morning. And that day the Lord sent me out with the good news of the kingdom. For more than 40 years, I've been telling this story. My step is getting rather slow. My voice breaks down and sometimes I am awful tired. But still, I'm telling it. My lips shall proclaim the dying love of the Lamb with my last expiring breath. Ah, my dear old master. He sleeps out yonder in the old cemetery. And in this world, I shall see his face no more. But I don't forget it. He gave me a holiday and sent me out to tell my friends what great things God had done for my soul. Often as I preach, I feel that I'm doing what my old master told me to do. If he were here now, I think he would lift up those kind black eyes of his and say, that's right, John, still tell me. Fly like the angel and wherever you go, carry the gospel to the people. Farewell, my old master. When I land in the heavenly city, I'll call at your mansion that the Lord had ready for you when you got there. And I shall say, Master Sam, I did what you told me. And many of them are coming up here with their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb that were led into the way by my preaching. And as you started as you started me, I want you to share in the glory of their salvation. And I tell you what I write. That when Master Sam sees me, he'll say, John, call me Master no more. We're brothers now. And we'll live forever round the throne of God. What can embitter a person? What can be a, a horrible, painful witness to the lack of the power of the gospel to change us than someone who chooses Jesus as Savior, calls God Jesus Savior, but doesn't call Him Lord? And what can allow someone to even forgive the sin of someone who held them in chains? but the love of God in Jesus Christ. A heart transformed by that love because they have looked on Jesus not only as Savior, but have learned from Him as Lord to love as He loves. 
Jesus has done for us. He has loved his enemies. Now we have the opportunity to learn from him how to do the same. So that we might be whole, fulfilled, complete, perfect in our Savior's eyes. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious God, the mountain seems so high and the way so long that we seem tired before we begin. Some of us have walked with you for a day, some of us for years uncounted. And when we look at ourselves in the mirror, when we consider the state of our hearts in our times of quiet reflections, we know how much more transformation there is yet to be done. Grant us to walk with your word. Grant us the power of your spirit that calls us back again and again to the foot of the cross to confess our sins and to your words of counsel until we can learn to love as you love. For your love is patient and kind not envious or arrogant or boastful or rude. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Help us to have that love inside of us. As we quell our anger, set aside our disordered desires, learn to be transparent in our words, and refrain from seeking vengeance until finally we can even love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. This we ask in the precious name that is above all names, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my life.